Rachel Korazim is a powerful speaker and a freelance Jewish education consultant specializing in curriculum development for Israel and Holocaust education. She's involved with Jewish education worldwide, creating and implementing in-service training programs for educators, writing educational materials, counseling, and teaching. As one of the founders and directors of a, prog a special program for Israeli soldiers from disadvantaged backgrounds, she was responsible for creating the educational framework and training, and training teachers for the implementation of the program. Born in Israel, she served in the IDF as an officer in the central training base for women and was later a member of the IDF delegation to Niger, or Niger, Niger? Niger, Niger with her French accent, West Africa. She's a graduate of Haifa University with a PhD in Jewish education. Please join me in welcoming Rachel Korazim back to Orange County. Welcome back. Thank you. Ari, for all the work you're doing here for a lovely introduction. Shalom, everybody. Since a, Ari read my bio with the speed that you read the names of the sons of Haman, <laughs> uh, I am letting you, especially those who are, is there anybody who's meeting me for the first time? Okay, anybody else? But still, even old timers, you may still be curious about stuff about me that's not in my general a bio and introduction, so you get to have three questions, not each, all of you together, <laughs> for anything that you may want to still know about me. I always encourage people to think about it in two ways. What is it that if you knew about me would make this session more meaningful to you? Second flip side, what is it that if you don't know that about me, you don't care what I have to say, okay? <laughs> So, any questions? You get three, all of you together, not each. Yes, sir? Your background in poetry. Non-existent. My sister is the poet. I can only read it. I cannot write it. But I'm a student of literature of poetry. Thank you for your question. Yeah, anybody else? You're done? Fine. Two questions. Two more. Uh, how long have you lived in the old city? Why did you move to, how long have you lived and why did you move to the old city of Java? Okay, I'm trying to think very quickly to make it a very short one. I do not live in the old city, I couldn't afford it. Homes in the old city, the renovated, gentrified old city of Jaffa would cost in American dollars what I have in shekels, so no. But I live very nearby, I'll tell you very, very quickly. Yossi, husband, partner, love of my life, second husband, was my high school sweetheart. Yes, I do live in a soap opera. <laughs> we separated and we got together. And in our previous life in high school, uh, we lived in Haifa, which has the beach, which is where our relationship as teens was playing out. And it is a mixed city, Arab and Jewish. And we, we were part of growing up like that in Israel. When we met together, he was working for the government. I got a job with the Jewish agency. You couldn't be on the coastal area. You needed to be in Jerusalem. But our commitment was that as soon as the first of us retired, which was me, a, we will move back to the beach, not back to Haifa, because Haifa had unfortunately become for us the city of cemeteries, as all four of our parents have died. So we just go there for your site. And we decided to move to Jaffa, which was closer, but had the same two major features. A mixed community where people live together really, really peacefully and the vicinity of the beach. Does that answer your question? Sure. 
We also like the restaurants, the pitot, the hummus, and oh. so on. Yeah, so one last question. People go to Israel, what's your number one pita hummus place to go to? Abu Hassan, on oh. Dolph Abu Hassan next to my home corner. Right of there yeah, 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 that one. Right there. Yeah, Abu Hassan, the best ever. You know how it operates. First of all, he became totally Ashkenazi. He doesn't open on Shabbat. Yeah, it's in Jaffa. The other thing is, uh, he, they, they get up early in the morning, and you know in order to cook your hummus, you need to soak it ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So they soak it the night before, and they get up very early in the morning to cook it for when the customers come. And if you get up early enough for your running or for your walk in the morning, and you walk by Abu Hassan, there is this beautiful moment that I try to catch as often as I can. They take like handfuls of the hummus and spread them for the birds before they start working. Was the thing that if you want to get, you need to give. So this is how they start their morning every day and I love it. They cook up a tremendous amount of hummus and full and laban and whatever. And when it's out, they close the business. It's around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and that's it. Don't plan on dinner at Abu Hassan's. It's your either oriental breakfast place or your lunch place. That's it. Is there any more questions, or are we done? We done. Yala. Let's go. OK. So uh, throughout the years, many of us Israelis who, who deal with this complex, complex relationship uh, between the Jewish community of Israel and the one living on these parts, a topic that I will relate to much more in detail on Sunday, I have discovered to my pain that I take a lot of trouble getting to know American literature, and especially so American Jewish literature. And when I want to make some allusions to Israeli literature, very few people here who are smart people, well-read people, people who are fluent in, in literature. So I know there is the problem of translation, but I think it's beyond that. Because nowadays there's plenty in translation, and still we need to make an effort to be able to be conversant in each one's literature. And I would say that that's a pity for me, because go with me on an imaginative trip. If about 100 years ago, a well-read, well-educated Jew from Kovna would have a chance to come and visit an equally well-read, well-educated Jew in Brooklyn. And the Brooklyn guy would invite his guest into his study. The guest will look around, and I would guess 80% of the books would be familiar, and vice versa. It doesn't work for us anymore. We got cut off. We don't read the same literature. So I started developing series of sessions in which I invite people to look at Israel and Israeli society not through your regular documentary, political, whatever means, but use the Israeli literature as a lens. By now, I counted. I have redone my catalog, and it has 56 items. So by now, I have 56 different such sessions. Each one of them looking at an aspect of Israeli life. 
discussing it through literature. I often get asked, are your sessions objective? No way. A poem will get into my session because I love it. There could be other people doing the same work like you, and they would choose something to address the very same topic, and their choice will be A, totally different, B, totally kosher. Okay? So you could address this very same topic with another variety of poetry or literature. Today, you are listening to mine. It's always a sort of a dialogue between me and the powers that be choosing the sessions, although I must say with Awe, he knows normally very well what he wants me to do, so we are going ahead and doing it. The choice for today was for me very interesting one. I'll tell you why, Ali. Most of the groups that ask me to do this are rabbis. I rarely get to do it with lay people. So I really welcome the challenge. The topic Alec have chosen for us is dialogues with God in modern Israeli literature. Sichot im bore olam alav. Anochi, dialogues with God. Anochi being the Hebrew name for I am. Anochi Adonai Lecha, I am your God. I find, first of all, it's curious that only rabbis want to address this. I'm very happy when lay people and me are getting to do it together. B, it addresses very well a situation by which there is a tendency both outside of Israel and inside Israel to look at us Israeli Jews as completely being divided along this imaginary non-existent line between the secular and the religious. And when they say religious in Israel, they normally mean orthodox and ultra-orthodox. And for people belonging to the orthodox and ultra-orthodox, the conservative reform, etc., either do not exist or are not Jewish or do not count, depend how far into that you are in Israel. Secular Israelis just don't care. Now, we think about secular Israelis I want to make 100% sure that you understand what we mean when we say secular Israelis. I am considered a secular Israeli. I light my candles on Shabbat. I get crazy before Seder. We luckily have only one. I fast on Yom Kippur. I light my Hanukkah candles every single night. When Shiva came to my life, it was full, full seven days, all day. I speak fluent Hebrew. I can and do read the Bible in the original, but I'm considered a secular Jew. Go figure. Yeah, now, I'm a secular Jew. I arrived on Shabbat. I even scuba dive on Shabbat. So the language needs to be addressed very, very sensitively. Words do not mean exactly the same in different parts of the world. Sometimes in Israel, they don't mean the same when you cross to the other street. I chose dialogues with God in modern Israeli poetry with putting now another subtitle. It's dialogues with God in general. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when the exceptions come among secular Israeli writers. The secular like myself, okay? Secular people like myself. So you will find in what is absolutely tagged as non-religious, 
secular poetry in Israel, people like Amichai and Alterman and whatever, and they will address the existence of God, their search for the divine, their anger with the divine, their polemics with the divine, but you cannot have polemics if he is not there, okay? So it's a complex relationship. The choice is mine. Sometimes it's extremely interesting because you talk about and to and whatever, but in a very not respectful way. I said it nicely now. We are starting with a song, did you? Yeah, you know that because most of you have met me. So I'm just talking to the gentlemen who haven't met me. A, in Hebrew, the word poem and song are the same word, shir. So this particular, the, the, one, uh, the first one, we carry torches, uh, is a shir, is actually a song. In Israel, by the way, a lot of our poetry is set to music and we sing a lot of our poetry, but this one was created as a song. Before we address it, I need to really have a conversation with you and it will sound like a test, but it doesn't it's not meant as a test, just as a conversation. So I need to ask you, ladies and gentlemen, could you, do you remember the reason for which we celebrate Hanukkah? What is it that we celebrate on Hanukkah? What happened that needs for us to celebrate? Yes, ma'am. First fight for religious freedom. Fight for religious freedom. Thank you. And when you celebrate Hanukkah, that's the main story you tell. We fought for religious freedom. Thank you. I'm going to challenge that. What's the main story we tell when we tell the story of Hanukkah? What happened? Well, the, the candles lasted for Candles? The oil. The oil. The first thing people get to know when they are as young as three years old and all the way up is that amazing miracle where there is, they needed to purify the temple and to do a new celebration, la 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 la, and they needed oil to light the big Hanukkah, the big temple candelabra, and there was just a little urn, and lo and behold, it should have been enough for one day, and it was sufficient for eight. Now, it's great for me that the two people who have answered me sit ne one next to the other, <laughs> because I need to see the dip, they are married, okay. And we get the two very opposing reasons for Hanukkah, stories for Hanukkah, it's because they are married. That's fine. I'm gonna ask a further step. Since you spoke about the war and the fighting for freedom, it's not really a test, just a conversation, and if you do not know, it's fine, I will tell them. When did that battle take place? Where? When, when? If you don't know, just tell me I don't know. And that's, yeah. 70, isn't it? No, 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 no. No, no way, not 70. Anybody happens to know those events where the Maccabees are fighting the Greeks who were actually Syrians, but who cares? Never mind. When did that happen? Pardon? 165, yeah, 150, depending because it lasted, but yeah. Second century before the common era. 70 of the common era is another fight. We fight again, okay? All right. How do we know about those freedom fights from the second century BC? 
What's his face? Yeah. What's his face? Okay, two sources. I'll have because I want to get it. Yeah, Josephus is 70. So Je Je Book of Maccabees. Book of Maccabees, who nobody knows who wrote. Pardon? Not in our canon. Not in our canon. But as far as researchers tell us, it is the closest to the time, second century BC. And it tells us about the fight for freedom. Then comes the other source, Josephus, otherwise known, also known as Yosef ben Matityahu, the guy was a Jew, who converted and becomes a Roman, not a Latino, but writing in Latin, okay. Josephus Flavius, and he writes, among other things, a book called The Wars of the Jews, and in it he tells the story of the freedom fight of Hanukkah. Josephus, let me remind you, comes a good 230 years after the fact. So Book of Maccabees, Josephus already 250 years after. As close as you can get. Does any of the two, Book of Maccabees, tell us about the miracle of the oil? No. no. None of them. When do we first hear about the miracle of the oil? Talmudic. More or less fifth century, like the Babylonian Talmud, the third to the eighth. I'm going closer to the beginning in order to be nice. So fifth century of the common era. Ladies and gentlemen, that's 750 years after the fact. Let me add to that that it's from Babylon, not from the land of Israel. Far away in time and geography. Now, leave your calculations. Look at me and tell me, with all your trips with Ali to Israel, when does one pick olives in Israel? When is the time for olive picking? Pardon? I'll tell you in a minute. I'm just trying to torture you a bit. When, when is the time for olive picking? Huh? Immediately after the high holidays. Immediately after Sukkot. You travel in the Galilee and all the roads, those little Arab kids are standing there with piles of freshly picked green olives and you can press them yourself if you want. Cold press, whatever you want. So you have an abundance of olives in Israel that will start being treated, pressed, and purified. That's a process that takes about eight weeks. When is the time in the land of Israel when there is absolutely no shortage of new, pure olive oil? Thank you. Like, duh. <laughs> there are bonim in Babylon. They are not in the Galilee. 750 years have gone by. Why do the rabbis come up with the miracle story? Because it's for children. children I mean no, 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 no. Much more serious than that, ma'am. Much more serious than children. No, 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 no. Why do the rabbis come up with this story? I'll tell you. Exactly. 
to put God into the story. Because after the Hasmonean revolt, second century BC, comes the 71 against the Romans, both end with a disaster. 60 odd years after that will come the Bar Kokhba revolt, twice as much as a, result, a disaster. After that, excuse me for a minute, Ari, comes the diaspora revolt. There was one like that. Total disaster. By the fifth century, the Rabunim want to put down the freedom fight story. They do not want fighting anymore. They want peace and quiet life outside of Israel exile, diaspora, America, whichever way you want to call it. And they don't want to revolt. In comes the miracle story. It's all the doings of God. What I need to tell you that among all of our holidays, high and low, the holiday that goes through the largest majority of changes is Hanukkah. Actually, you know why they had the festival after the cleansing of the temple? Because the Sukkot festival couldn't take place. They were still fighting. By the time they are done with the fighting, they say, all right, let's do the Sukkot celebration now. They didn't plan for it to be a new holiday. It was just replacing Sukkot. Then it becomes a new holiday. Then it celebrates the fighting. Then it becomes a miracle holiday. Should I point out to you how it changes here in America? when you start having songs like on the first day of Hanukkah, la 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 la, and I wonder where that is coming from? No, I don't wonder. Hanukkah in itself is a litmus test to the history since. And every single time you catch it in history, it will be a reflection. Like since when did we start buying presents and gifts on Hanukkah? You know exactly where that influence comes from. It's not from the Babylonian Talmud. You know? And potato latkes give me a break. They did not come from Babylon either. So Hanukkah is really the litmus test of where we are and what is happening to us. And now we come to Israel of the 1930s, when we finally have, you know, the new waves of Zionist immigration. And among other things, we now have a great Hebrew-Jewish high school in Tel Aviv, and it's called Gymnasia Herzliya. Gymnasia not being a gym, but being a high school. And the teachers of Gymnasia Herzliya, Zionists, strong pioneers, building, are we interested in Babylonian rabbis? Are we interested in miracles? We're going back to the Maccabees. And they're starting an old new tradition by which the high school students of Gymnasia Herzliya will have a parade all the way from Tel Aviv to the graves of the Maccabees by Modi Inn. Not so far, you can do it. It's okay, you can do it, kids can do it. But when kids march, they need to march to a song, right? So they go to a very Zionist, more than slightly left of center, secular Israeli poet. I, I have put on the full name Aharon Ze'ev against my better judgment, 
because people were nagging me. Because in Israel, there are a few poets whom we address only by their first names. Like Rachel, the poetess from Kibbutz Kinneret. Like Ze'ev. But people so many times have asked me, so who is this Ze'ev? How come he doesn't have a last name, etc., etc. So actually, Ze'ev was his last name, and Aharon was his first name. I actually met him personally. Uh, he was the first a cultural officer in the IDF. And I don't want to go to the story of where, how, how I have met him was already very old when I did. And he composes the song. Now here I need help. So I wonder, are there people who happen to know how to sing We Carry Torches? Mm -hmm. Guys, it's your problem now because you don't know it. You are exposed to my singing. <laughs> and I am forewarning you that I could not carry a tone if my life depended on it. Yet I will sing, I will sing a little bit of it to you so that you understand that it's not you're sitting at home and admiring the candles. No. No, ladies and gentlemen. We are into, and on the first day of, no. And like, no. This is now Israel before state becoming. Anu nosim lapidim, velelotafelim, zorchim, hashvilim, mitachat raglenu, umi asher levlo hatsamela or, yisa et ena velibo elenu la or, veyavo, tadatatam, nes lo karalanu. Etc., etc., etc. Can you see the kids marching? Yes. Torches in their hands? It's a marching song. It's a marching song. It's a Zionist pioneering song. Thank you very much, rabbis of the Talmud. Thank you very much. Thousands of years of traditions from Europe and other countries, not interested anymore. We are back to the land of Israel, and let's look at the words. Now, I always run, like to run a quick test. Take a minute at the English text. Depending on your Jewish background, which I am not checking, how many blasphemous statements you can find in this Hanukkah song? Take a quick look and tell me how many truly like not kosher chutzpedig, <laughs> blasphemous statements you can find in this song. Five. Five-ish, all right. We'll go step by step. You will stop me with every blasphemy, okay? We carry, by the way, translation is not an official one. There is no official translation of this one. This one was done by my son Uri, not Ari who is the best Chavruta one can hope for. Chavruta is a study partner that I have in my life that one could hope for. And the reason for that is that Uri is going to turn 48 comes October, and he has yet to agree with anything I say. <laughs> <laughs> and when he, but it's a pleasure to work with him. 
because you do not want a yes person when you study a text with somebody. You want somebody who will challenge. And when Ori did this translation, I said, Ori, but this is not exact. I said, yeah, but I want them to be able to sing it in English. So he did the translation so that when I do it with teams, we can sing it, which we will not do today. We carry torches at night and the dark all around. The paths start to shine under our footsteps. And if your heart is in the is a, in it, the third for thirst for the light, you will come and join with your heart to us for the light and the fight. Anything disturbing yet? What's disturbing? Well, the, what, you're, what you're doing is you're talking about uh, uh, fighting, in, in, which is um, uh, something that the rabbis definitely did not want you to talk about. Okay, so now with modern Zionism, we are not interested in anything developed after we left Israel. We jump straightly from the Tanakh, as we say jokingly in Israel, to the Palmach. Nothing, nothing in between. My money is Rashi, tell me, ah. Okay, so first of all, you have this atmosphere like, I don't care. Rabboni might have said, fine. We are now in a different business. We came back to our origins, and our forefathers have fought, and so will we. And all those other reasons of 2,000 years of exile, not interesting. Now comes the real part. Miracle do not happen. Shalom, rabbis. <laughs> the Hebrew is nes lo The verbal translation, no miracle had happened to us. It's not just that miracles do not happen. It's a total negation of the Talmudic Masechet Shabbat about Hanukkah. Total negation. Yeah? Isn't Karala new? Is that don't happen to us, but also don't call to us? No, that's Karala with Aleph, and this is a Karala with Hay. The sounds in Hebrew can be very, very misleading, but thank you for the thought. Beautiful. No urn of oil have we found. Oh, in vain. All that story from the Talmud never happened. Don't listen to it. We walked down the valley. We climbed up the mountain. Ta -ta -tam. How about climbing mountains? Do you remember a clear case in our history when we were totally forbidden from climbing the mountain? So it's not enough for him what he had done blasphemy with so far with the Hanukkah story. He needs to go to Matan Torah, right? Where, where Torah was given and it, we, we were forbidden. We were to stand at the foot of the mountain and do not climb. And they say, <laughs> nah. If need be, we'll go to the valley, we'll climb the mountain, we climbed up the mountain, sources of hidden lights we discovered. Absolutely. We, with our own hands, did it all. Total blasphemy. Not when you study with my son, Ori. Who will say, Mom, have a little compassion. Can't you see the Hasidic vein in it? how we looked for the light, how we searched, how we found it in hidden places. 
But you need my son already to be able to see that because I'm totally angry at the blasphemy. <laughs> Miracles do not happen, no urn of oil have we found. We dug in the rock till we bled and there was light. God gave us light. And look at the Hebrew. I mean, you have to work your way to the last word to see the epitome of blasphemy. The earliest word of creation is Vayahi Or. And he's using that very text in the Hebrew. Like chutzpah on top of chutzpah. Okay? So I always like to start with this one. Nothing that I will show you today will anger you more than this. Yeah. I'm getting there. Hold your breath for three more days. <laughs> when Israel has the ceremony, the declaration of the Day of Independence, which is celebrated with a ceremony and the ritual on top of Mount Herzl, over which some of our politicians just recently spent a lot of virtual ink fighting, but that's another story. It is called Tekes Hadlakat Hamasuot. They light short torches and it comes at the end of Memorial Day. And before we are ready to go into the barbecues and the picnics and the dancing and whatever, there is the ceremony that most of Israel watches. I, I hesitate to say today all because I don't think the Arab population necessarily watches it and they don't think the ultra-Orthodox do. But your mainstream Israel watches the ceremony. 12 people who would have been chosen for a particular reason of excellence that year will be lighting each a toast, sometimes there are two, and every year the government chooses a topic, could be science, could be heroism, could be gathering of the exiles, whatever, and whoever excelled in that in life will get the honor of coming up, reading a very concise text it always starts with I, daughter of so-and-so, or son of so-and-so, lighting a torch to honor, la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la, and then there is a closure sentence that everybody repeats, and for the glory of the state of Israel. This will be done for the 69th time this year. It wasn't done the first year, okay? We were still fighting the war of independence. While this is going on, there is a choir. And what the choir is singing is we light torches. Year in, year out. And my absolutely sworn conviction is that nobody ever listened to the words. <laughs> While they are, I mean, they have been religious ministers of education. They have been observant people among the people who light the torches. And for 69 years, they are singing. I trust they'll sing it this year as well, you know? And I'm like really in wonder, like I'm your secular, left of center, whatever, I shouldn't care. And I'm totally perplexed by the total success of what this song had represented at the time pre-state, early years. This is the revival. This is the coming back into your own. Ze'ev is long dead. Nobody pays attention to the words anymore. And they still love to sing. 
Like, isn't that amazing? Yes, yes they still sing it. And if you go on TV or on your computer. At, at yeah. 10 o'clock, I, I watch it every year online, ILTV.com. <coughs> if you turn it on at 10 a.m. on Wednesday on your computer, you can watch it. And listen up if they are singing. <laughs> to this very day. So yes, it's not a song that had disappeared, it's still there and it always serves me as a good entry point into this question of the, the place of the conversation or the dialogue with the divine in modern Israeli literature. And this one from the very early pre-state years is your Dafka kind of text that totally lost the Dafka element and becomes a totally mainstream thing to be part. I, I think it happens to folk songs in other cultures as well. That people do not pay attention anymore and they have been war songs and whatever and they keep singing them because they love the tune or whatever. Turn the pages, in, in questions on, for that? No. Go to page three for me please. And we are now coming to, again, another milestone text. Oh, by the way, an additional comment that I just remembered. In pre-state years, we do not have your Matzmot, right? Because you cannot have a day of independence before you have your independence. As I was preparing my sessions for Israel at 70, and researching the early poetry of the first days of independence, I came across an article that discussed in detail the fact that before we had a state, Hanukkah was a sort of a day of independence. Celebrating the Maccabees was already a foreshadowing of the next phase that we are hoping for. So this was the song of that, okay? and nobody touched it since. When we turn the pages, we come to Yudha Michai. I know we have studied Yudha Michai in these circles, and yet with your permission, a quick repetition. Not anymore with us for almost 18 years now. Yudha Michai was born in the year 1924 in Germany to an observant, what one would call modern Orthodox family. Probably had we asked Yudha Michai's father, he would say, Jewish, you mean? I don't think that they played around with what kind of orthodox and what kind of other Jewish stream. Uh, unlike many of that community of, Ge of Germany in the 20s or the 30s, the father of the family in the year 1936 sees what's going around and takes the whole of his family out of Germany and into British Mandate Palestine, the land of Israel. The 12-year-old Yuda Michai who is neither Yuda nor Amichai at that time, but with a good old German name, is like, of course, they start his education in an Orthodox school, but like many a child of survivors who would want to out Israeli, every Israeli, soon enough, off goes the kippah, off goes the German name. And by the War of Independence in 1948, when he is 24, you will find him fighting first with the Brits against the Nazis, and then for the independence of Israel among the Haganah, uh, ranks at uh, the Palmach and later on in the IDF. Yudha Michai starts writing around that time. His first book that will appear, very easy to remember, 
because it's title. I need to tell you what I say. Oftentimes, Yudam Michai has amazing creative poetry with the dullest names for his books. So his first book has the amazingly original title, Poems. <laughs> 1948 to 1969. So this is how us teachers of Israeli poetry remember when Yudam Michai started publishing. <laughs> because uh, he started writing and started publishing. The poems we are reading comes from that book. So this is a very early Amichai, and I will show you a much later Amichai. This is a young man Amichai who was at the War of Independence around the time he is 24. So that's not a child anymore, but neither totally an adult, I would say, or still formative years, okay? Also, I think that we need to remember as we are just sort of groping our way out of Yom HaShoah, the day of commemoration for the Holocaust, that although the Holocaust and its repercussions have a tremendous impact on Israeli society. There are those among us for whom the major trauma, trauma in their history is not the Holocaust, but one of Israel's wars that they had participated in, maybe were shell-shocked in, maybe lost the best of their friends, family, etc. Amichai belongs to that group. He is one of the people who carries deep scars for the war of independence. No matter how we have celebrated the great victory of the war of independence while in Jewish summer camp or school or later at synagogue gatherings, it was a very painful war. We did not win victories in all the battles. We have lost a lot. When Ben-Gurion stands on that podium in what was at the time the Tel Aviv Museum on Rothschild Avenue to declare the state of Israel, there are 600,000 Jews living in that part of the world that had just turned from Palestine to the state of Israel. By the time we reached the ceasefire agreements in 1949, or the armistice agreements later in 1949, Israel will have lost 6,000 people to that first war, a full 1% of the population. You want to make a calculation, God forbid, what number that would mean today? The size, the immensity of the loss is terrible. Now do not think 1%, because the fighting power, strength, people, is not from zero to 80. The people who fight are 17 maybe to 40. So it's a much higher percentage of that particular group. There is not one family in Israel that is not touched. Imagine being a teacher those years, as the news are coming in about your former students. Imagine being a pediatrician, the 
there's a news coming up in about your former patients, etc. Amichai belongs to that. Remember that Amichai is coming from an Orthodox family, not living an observant way of life anymore, but the background is there. Let us read. Because Amichai rarely gave his poems titles, we normally know them by the first line. God has pity on kindergarten children. He pities school children less, but adults he pities not at all. I'd like you to look at this sequence and remember all those beautiful works of literature that dealt with the issue of people coming of age. To mention just the most classical, the whole world is a stage, and we people are mere players, and the childhood, and youth, and whatever. There are Greek legends about the phases of coming of age, and so so Many novels deal with the process of maturing, going on a journey, coming back, odysseys, and such. Amichai is borrowing from that classical shape by describing the process of coming of age in the land of Israel through the negation of divine grace. When you are in kindergarten, he still has pity of you. A little bit less when you are in school, when you grow up. Forget about it, he's not there. He is not there. The young Amichai experiences coming of age in Israel as a process of losing the sense of divine protection. That's painful. That's painful. How does he know that? How does he know that an adult Israeli cannot expect divine grace? He abandons them. And sometimes they have to crawl on all fours in the scorching sand to reach the dressing station, streaming with blood. Ha <laughs> ha, how do I know? Now again, yes ma'am. What is the dressing station? In the military, when there is a war going on, and you do not have, as you do today, field hospitals and the ability to pick up the wounded with a helicopter to take them all the way to the doctor, then you will have something temporary where they will just dress your wounds. In Hebrew, it's actually the collecting, but this is an official translation, so I didn't mess with it, okay? Now, I want you to address it from a particular point of view. Because this is a classical, if you wish, or an anti-classical critique of the IDF. Because in our knowledge, the IDF is the army that will not leave a bleeding soldier trying to get on his all, all fours to the dressing station. In our understanding of the ethics of the IDF, we will take care of every single one of our wounded. So what is Amichai talking about? Also in our modern imagery of the IDF, the IDF is the, is the army that 
that have all those field hospitals that can deploy in Haiti in 24 hours. Right? Wrong. In 48, you do not have that yet. You do not really have an idea to speak of. Amichai is fighting in the Negev in the south. You know that because of the scorching hot sands. You don't have them in the Galilee. So it's in the Negev. What do they have in the Negev in the time to protect them? I mean, whatever forces they had, Ben-Gurion had around Jerusalem and around Tel Aviv. They had the minimum of minimum. The Egyptian army was marching on them all the way almost to Rehovot, which is practically the southern, whatever, 20 miles from Tel Aviv. So you're abandoned, alone. And you try to make it crawling. And it's then, in the scorching heat, bleeding on your own, not being sure maybe that you see that, that goal, the dressing station, that you have this sense of now you are an adult and on your own in a godless situation. Wow. That's painful. That's disappointed. But now we reach a classical Amichai position. Because in almost every Amichai poetry, much more easily discerned in later poetry, but the beginning is almost there, somewhere along the way, there will be a but, or an end. Or even much later, Amichai, which I really love, it's neither but nor end, but it's a sense of, I'll have to move again, I, I hope the recording will be good, but I'll demonstrate. It's sort of you have written something, and then you step aside and look at what you have written and say something about it, okay? We will see that in later poetry. Here, it's almost that, but it's a negation. The Hebrew uses the word Ulai, and the English translator had chosen, but perhaps. The Hebrew doesn't have aval for but. It just has ulai. Now, I want to, to elaborate on that ulai, the maybe. Because Amichai is a young poet. And young poets will have in their arsenal the poetry of their country, of the culture, on the shoulders of which they are standing. And prior to Amichai, by a good 30 years, one of the major poetic voices is the poetry of Rachel, the poetess from Kibbutz Gain, also Zionist poetry. And she has a very famous one, doubting her reality, set to music. We remember it by singing it. I would not be able to quote it to you without singing. Maybe things have never happened. Maybe I never woke up early in the morning to walk the alley in the kibbutz to the lake. Right? Okay. So it is impossible to live in the Israel of Amichai, without whistling, singing, knowing this one. 
So for it to creep or infiltrate or just be added to his poetry, that ulai, that, and, and it's such a lilting word, okay, because of the L in it. Ulai, and the whole tone had changed. But perhaps he will have pity on those who love Trolli. Give him a break. He's 24. Don't be angry that he's ready to replace the existence of God with the true love. Because at 24 and hopefully later in life, you know what a support a true love can give. And Amichai says that may be our hope. Maybe he will come back and have pity on those who love truly. The young man had discovered that other source of support in the absence of the divine. But perhaps he will have pity on those who love truly and take care of them and shade them like a tree over the sleeper on the public bench. Oy, how Israel that is. How easy it is to teach in Southern California. How difficult it is for me to teach in the Northern East Coast. Yeah. Because ohavim means lovers in Hebrew. Very simple. Very, very simple. But I'd like to go back to the sign of the existence of God in a Middle Eastern country. Just a minute, ma'am. Which is easy to teach in Southern California and difficult in Northern Eastern America in the winter. God is in the shade. In a hot country's culture, God in, is, is in the shade. Think about Jonah. God is in the shade. We live in a hot country. How do you know God exists? It's not by central heating. It's by shade in the summer. And he totally captures. I remember one of the first times I taught this outside of Israel was in Sedona, Arizona. They got it. They totally, totally got it. And here we have an example of how much the context of the poem plays an important part. In Israel, for a man to sleep on a bench in the park is not necessarily homelessness. It could be. But it's not necessarily that. Because the weather is such that you can recline and fall asleep. My husband does that all the time. When he's tired in the summer, he doesn't want to continue driving. He'll stop by a car, get out, sleep for a quarter of an hour, and then go back and continue driving. So it's from him I'm taking that. It could be a homeless person. But still, the image is in the comfort of true love, lovers, or havim be'emet, who truly love, huh? It's not just a flirt. Amichai wants like the real thing, truly love. Perhaps even we will spend on them our last pennies of kindness inherited from mother, so that their own happiness will protect us now and on the other days. 
And now it's how this image will touch him and us personally. When we see that, when we rediscover the existence of God by the shade over the people in the public park, maybe we can then go to another major resource. Those pennies of mercy, of kindness that we inherited from mom. In Amichai poetry, it's not enough to read the one poem. Father image is always connected with the eternal, the metaphysical, the great, the big, the da. And mother is the daily coins, matbeot, pennies that you collect and give out to whoever needs it. So that their happiness, the true lovers, will protect us now and in the days to come. I want to tell you that as much as in other cultures, sometimes a line is picked up from a poem and used in speeches and articles and whatever, and you have the suspicion that the people who use it have long forgotten where it comes from. So this line, let do it for now and for the days to come, for now and on other days, is often used in Hebrew. And I trust that many do not know where it comes from and it doesn't matter. It just tells you what the impact of true words of poetry and how they become expressions of the land. Ava, is it true that I need to finish by 12.30? Yeah. Okay, so. A little more time. A little more? Yeah, give, give me, give me a, a limit. Tomorrow? Huh? Tomorrow? We will do Elias Cohen. I just want to leave enough time for him. So, uh, About 15 minutes. Hmm? Another 15? Okay. Page six. Page six, it's a biggie. I know that oftentimes when people such as myself would be asked, so what's your favorite poem? It's very hard. Even as a mother of two and grandmother and eight, I wouldn't choose between those. So how can I choose between the abundance of beautiful pieces of art, poetry, Israeli, and universal that I love? But if I had to shortlist, then this one will be among my first 10 and maybe very close to the top. It's a very short Amichai poem. It's almost the structure of those Persian square poems or the Japanese haiku. Very, very short. And it's, it's like a quarter of a sonnet, you know? It's really very short. And when that happens, you need to be very careful because every single word counts. And I would like to start with the impact of the first line, which is also the name, the title of this poem. I want for you to listen to it in Hebrew and then we'll discuss it in English. Gam letfilat yachid tzarich shnaim. A solitary prayer also needs to. For me, the essence of the session I am going, I'm doing, discussing connectedness to God in secular literature lies in the paradox of this line. Because what Amichai is saying, hello, chavirim, 
there is no such thing as a solitary prayer. It beats the meaning of the word. Prayer needs two. The one who prays and the one you pray to. So Amichai goes smack into the heart of the issue. I'm already becoming agnostic. I'm, and still I recognize that there is a paradox in the thing. Because even a solitary prayer needs to, because there is no such thing as a solitary prayer, because a prayer impels the duality of the two participants in the act. Always one who moves and the other who doesn't move, that is God. Oi, is he angry. Oi, is he angry. But be careful with Amichai's anger. He doesn't say there is no God. He says there is one. He's just immovable. My father, like a good Orthodox Jew, moved in prayer. And all the years he had done it, God did not move towards him. But when my father prayed, he stood in his place, upright and unmoving. He forced God to move like a reed and pray to my father. No, it's not a little child thinking that his father is God. It's Amichai who has seen, not too many years off, but still, his orthodox observant father changing after the reality of the Holocaust becomes clear. Because they are safe in the land of Israel. But the whole community, the whole world that was theirs is in ashes. He didn't stop praying. But something in the relationship between the one who prays and the one prays to, to Amichai's senses, just looking at his father praying, something had changed. He will not bow anymore. There is a change in relationships. After what you have allowed to happen, I will not bow to you. I will not move to you. I will still continue praying upright, strong, speaking to the, to the Eve and the no miracles and doing it with your hand. It's not all that way, but there is some of that. Take a deep breath because in recent very modern, this is like probably from the last decade of the 20th century, Amichai's later literature, he died in the year 2000. And let us go to a poem by a relatively young poet. I trust those of you who have been on the recent trip to Israel have met Elias Cohen. If I wanted to tag him and tell you something about him, I would have to say he is a settler. And there immediately an image will come, a political and observant and rah-rah and eating Arab-Palestinian boys for breakfast. Well, Elias is very far away from that image. He is a relatively young. Is he still redhead? I haven't seen him in a while. No, he's changing. But he, he was redhead. He was a gingy. 
not anymore, okay? This comes from his first book, translated and available in English. Here, O Lord, the whole collection, the whole small anthology of those early poems by Elias Cohen are named after this major poem. Now, before we, we are on page 12. I want you to realize that I have provided a page of sources to show you that Elias Cohen, when creating this poem, is referencing Talmudic text. So it's not coming out of the blue in some sort of Ze'ev-like blasphemy. Not at all. He is totally citing it, and, and we are done in three minutes. Those who need to go, uh, it was wonderful having you, and I will need another three minutes to conclude. In order to truly get this poem, I need for those of you who can, if you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. If you don't need to, do not. Say the Shema, please, as you know it. And you know what the words mean. Here, O Israel. Remember how we started with this reversal of the Hanukkah story? Remember how we now concluded with the Amichai reversal of his father's relationship to God? I think that for now I can give you the latest in reversal of relationship in Israel, as per the Shema. Comes from the heart of modern Orthodox in Israel. Elias Cohen is an observant man. He wears a kippah. He lives an orthodox way of life. Here, O oh Lord, your people is Israel, your people is one. And thou shalt love thy people, Israel, with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And those sons that die on your account all day, shall be thine in heart. Can you hear a sense that we have in other events in Jewish relationship to text to ritual of Dayenu? Like enough already? I need for you to see me? Generations have been spent in telling you how great you are and how we love you? And how we see you? Well, hello. A little bit of reciprocity, please. And thou shalt remember them diligently in thy heavens, and shalt talk of them when you sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine arms in incandescent blue numbers. What is God's tefillin? What is the main reason for the change in tone? Holocaust. And, and they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes, like sniper shots. You know, not yesterday, on the border, whatever, in the fight where my friend had fallen. And thou shalt write them in blood 
upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. This is this, yes ma'am. Yeah. But in this case, referencing God, they're lowercase, just as if God is no more reverent than people. Because the whole poem is about some sort of inequality, a parallel. The, the whole poem is about setting inequality. We have done that so many years, exalting you, capital letters. It's time. By the way, of course, that will not get across to the Hebrew reader because we do not have capitals. Okay, but that comes very clearly into, and that means that the poet, when looking at the translation, was offered this option, and, and he was uh, choosing this one. Yeah, yes ma'am. The Shema Adoni doesn't it mean? Adonai. Shema Adonai, look at the punctuation. Well, okay, I didn't see it yeah. clearly, never mind. All right, it, it says the question, okay. Yeah, anything else? Yes, ma'am. Uh, if I were to read the I don't think you would know. But you, if you know, sometimes they tell us that we need to treat a poem, just the text without the context. I do not belong to that camp. I think that context matters. You know where Amichai Fathers comes from, you know where he died. Okay? So I think that will be a clue. But otherwise, if you want another traumatic effect, an event, it doesn't really matter. Yes, ma'am. What I am actually telling you that I do not really know what it means to say a secular Jew. This is what I'm telling you. Okay? I really do not know what the expression means. It's not an agnostic Jew. It's something else. One definition yes. is whether it belongs to a, a temple and a congregation. When then two thirds of the state of Israel. Of course not. We, none of us belongs. We don't do the belonging to a synagogue that's in what Israel. We, that's what we call secular, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's here, not there. You can be very orthodox and still don't belong or pay dues because your neighborhood synagogue was built by the state for you and the rabbi is on the salary of the state. So you pay your taxes, you go to the shul. Or not. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. I will come back and do yet other poems, not this text. We will be doing Biblical Motifs, Challenging Voices uh, tomorrow morning, or actually at lunchtime. And I'll be doing another session with a totally different poem, but I think very worthwhile at Shiramalo tonight. Thank you very, very much. I 
rarely give extra time. You know that. So uh, a few quick uh, closing remarks. I always try to thank my mom every time Rachel is here because my mom, and who uh, belongs to Temple Emmanuel and Newton's, a few years ago said she went to the best teacher ever. I've got to bring her. Um, her name is Rachel Karazim. And for my mom to actually, this is going to be online, to go to synagogue to study and have a favorite teacher, I had to bring Rachel. And uh, you have lived up to my mom's hype. So there you go. Um, I have information about joining our CSP Legacy Circle. If you haven't had a chance to do that, and you'd like to be one of us and support CSP for many years in the future, uh, please do so. I want to thank Ada, one of our most recent members, to join our Legacy Circle. And if you're a member of our Legacy Circle, thank you. Um, also, um, I think uh, when we went to Israel, I'll send you out a photo of us hanging out with uh, uh, Elias Cohen, you know, who does not have red hair. I look at the picture. I found it right there. Those of you who came, we, we had a split day. Some people went with uh, Mike and got sunburnt at... Uh, the Dead Sea, and some of us went to the West Bank for the day and enjoyed a day of exploring. Elias was the individual at the end. So thank you all. Wish you all a good Shabbos. Look forward to seeing you over the weekend, and have a great weekend.